Thank you for that worship. Our scripture this morning is going to be Matthew chapter 9. So I invite you to uh, turn to Matthew 9. We've been in Matthew a while, so your Bible should fall open pretty close to that. And uh, let's keep those, that uh, passage in front of us as we consider it together this morning. Now I have on this uh, stool before me this morning an old and venerable document that is filled with hieroglyphics that have been well nigh undecipherable for a long, long time to multitudes of people. And it is called a, an IRS Form 1040 <laughs> tax booklet. And it actually has something to do with our setting today. You know, it does remind us of that old saying that uh, the only things that are sure are death and taxes. Uh, that also happened to be true in the days of uh, the Gospel of Matthew. When Jesus walked the shores of Palestine. Last week, we were looking at an experience where Jesus returns to his home, his base of operation, which became his quote unquote home during his ministry in the town of Capernaum. He performs a miracle there. And then we pick up in verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, there being a house. Where he had healed a cripple and had forgiven him of his sins, which had caused great consternation. So going from that house, probably the house of Simon Peter, Jesus went from there and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guest of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they poured new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. Now, in the miracle that we considered last week, 
where Jesus went to the house, probably of Simon Peter, and healed a cripple and forgave his sins. We learn that Christ has the authority to do both, to heal sicknesses and to forgive sin. Now, in the passage this morning, we learn that Jesus has the authority to decide who, what sicknesses he will heal and what sins he will forgive. He's in charge. He has that authority. Now, do you suppose that the list will shrink or expand if Jesus is in charge Who gets healed and whose sins get forgiven? Well, what we learn in this brief passage is that when Jesus is in charge, mercy comes running. And the candidates list of potentially healed and forgiven people expands and expands and expands to the point That the only people who are not included are those who cannot admit they have need. And so we come to Matthew's story. This gospel is named after him. With his facility, with a pen, once he was redeemed, God used it to write this gospel. What do we know about Matthew? Well, we know that Matthew was a tax collector. In Capernaum. So it is still true in Jesus' day, and it is in our days, that the only things that are certain are death and taxes. But Jesus' day was a lot simpler. There were no elaborate tax codes, no complicated forms to try to fill out or get somebody's help filling out. It was really quite simple. You were required to pass by the tax collector's office. He told you the taxes you owed, and then he said, pay up. No excuses. Now, people like Matthew, who were tax collectors, paid a price, usually, to purchase the franchise for tax collecting in a certain geographical area. It was one of the first franchise operations. And obviously, if they paid a great price for this privilege... You could be guaranteed the taxes were high, the people were gouged, and the tax collectors were wealthy. And indeed, all of those points were true. Only Matthew in Capernaum knew the formula by which your taxes were calculated. Now, Rome got their cut. There was a bottom line figure that went to Rome. And then the local and regional governments got their cut. This sounds sort of familiar so far, doesn't it? But then there was the extra ingredient. Matthew got to add another figure that represented his profit for going to the trouble of collecting your taxes. Consequently, he was wealthy and the people were oppressed and people in Palestine despised tax collectors. In fact, the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders in these small towns of Palestine where the synagogues were, uh, taught the people that it was okay to cheat on your taxes. You could deceive tax collectors, and because they were such vile, despicable people, it was all right with God. That's not in the Bible, by the way. Now, we also know that Matthew was a Jew. Consequently, he not only had the charge of uh, greed leveled against him, but he was also considered a traitor. 
Most of the people in this day in, in Palestine, the Jews, usually had two names. One was their Hebrew name and one was their Roman or, or Greek name because that was the dominant culture. Matthew has two names, we find out as we read the other Gospels. The name Matthew and the other name was Levi. However, both of these are Hebrew names. He was a Jew through and through, and yet he was a traitor to his country, a profiteer on his own people. The name Levi may mean that he was part of the tribe of Levi who were set apart to perform priestly functions in Palestine. How could it be that a man with this rich heritage would forsake it and become a, a lackey of the Roman government who oppressed his countrymen and who profiteered on his own people? But there is hope in the story of Matthew. For if Matthew can receive mercy, so too can many of your friends. Because there's a familiarity to his story with which we can easily identify. We grow up in a culture that has been impacted by biblical Christianity. Western civilization in general, as well as, as the United States of America in particular, has been deeply impacted by biblical faith. And it takes revisionist history to extract the impact of the Bible upon our culture. And consequently, one of the largest unreached people groups in America are the formerly church. People who grew up in a culture of Christianity. But have forsaken it to worship at the altar of self-fulfillment, self-absorption, money, and things. So if there's hope for Matthew, there is hope for some of our friends. Perhaps there is hope for some of us in this room. Now, because Matthew was tax collector in Capernaum, and Jesus' ministry was so public, it was right in the marketplace, and Capernaum was his home base. Matthew had personal knowledge of the teachings and the ministry of the Son of God. Not only that, it is very likely that he witnessed the ministry of John the Baptist. And in Luke's gospel, we are told that many of the tax collectors in the region were, were, were captured by John's message. And they went to him and said, what do we need to do to begin to work the works of repentance? And John said to them, quit overcharging on your taxes. And so at this moment in time, Matthew has probably heard the message, seen the life witnessed the miracles and has pondered these things deeply in his heart. And Jesus comes by one more time. And he simply says, follow me. And wonder of wonders. Matthew, reflecting on this in his own gospel, says simply in the third person, Matthew got up. And he followed Jesus. Now, Luke, writing about the same experience, is a little, uh, adds a little to modest Matthew. And he uh, says, Matthew got up and he left everything and he followed Christ. Now, we just read a moment ago in the passage, verse 15, the kingdom of God is a party. You do know that, right? 
says so right there in the Bible. And so Matthew throws one for Jesus. He is mesmerized by God's mercy. Mercy came running in his direction and he got up and he ran toward it. And he will never get over that. And so he throws a party. Now again, Matthew in his understated, modest way says that there was a dinner at his house. But if you read Luke's gospel, Luke says it was a great feast. And Matthew had invited Jesus, all the disciples, and many, many of his tax collector friends and other sinners. Now think for a moment what it would have meant for all those people to appear at Matthew's palatial home. Of course, it means a lot for Matthew to do this, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But think about Jesus. For Jesus, it meant that he was going to disappoint the religious establishment and it would be a scandal to them and a huge stumbling block to their accepting him as the Messiah from God. Jesus coming to this party would cost him dearly in that department. What about the disciples? Well, most of the disciples grew up in Capernaum. That's where Matthew's tax collector booth was. So it was Peter and James and John that Matthew gouged regularly. And so there's a whole lot of mercy that's going to have to go around and a whole lot of forgiveness for Matthew not only to enter the kingdom, but for Jesus to forge a family out of his disciples that he is called. They're going to have to forgive this former enemy of theirs to show up at that party. In fact, just to look at how the family of God is a, is a fellowship of mercy, if you look at the next chapter, chapter 10 of Matthew, the opening verses, Matthew is amazed to learn that he is called to be a disciple of Jesus, and he lists the original 12 disciples. You see the list there, verses 2 and 3, I think. And he lists the names, gives a little bit of their pedigree, but of two disciples, he lists their former occupation. He says of himself, he was Matthew, the tax collector. He never got over grace. And then he says, Simon, the zealot. Now, what was the zealot? The zealot party were militant revolutionaries who were committed life or death to the violent overthrow of the enemies of Palestine and the punishment of traitors like Matthew. And do you see the wonder of God's grace? Both Matthew and Simon are going to have to forsake their prior passions and preoccupations to follow Christ. And then having been... A wash in his mercy, they must turn and show mercy to one another and, and offer the gift of forgiveness to one another. Only Jesus can do that in a life and in the middle of human relationships. But remember, Matthew is mesmerized by mercy because he is mesmerized by Christ. So Matthew throws a party and all the principles show up. Now, there are probably three reasons Matthew uh, threw this party. What do you think they are? Number one, he wanted to mark his spiritual birthday. Do you celebrate your spiritual birthday? Whether you can put a stopwatch to it and remember the exact day and hour, 
Do you regularly spend time in remembering, recollecting with gratitude the circumstances around which God took the initiative, sought after you, and drew you into his kingdom? Matthew is amazed that Jesus would love the likes of him and give him a place at his table in the kingdom of God. He wants to mark his birthday and say thanks to Jesus. Secondly, this is his open, public identification with Christ. He is saying at this point, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. He is irrevocably committed to Christ. And then third, he wants his friends. Those who like him chased after the illusion of the American dream. Self-fulfillment, self-absorption, money and things. To have the opportunity to drink at the fountain of mercy. Wouldn't you like to put a fly on the wall at that party? Considering all the characters that were present, the conversations that possibly went on among Matthew and Jesus and the disciples and his fellow tax collectors and the other sinners who were there. I mean, the term sinners here, the Pharisees had this list of people who just weren't going to make it. They weren't worthy of the kingdom of heaven. And there was a list of sinners, but then there were a list of the extremely vile sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes were beside one another at the bottom of the list. I guess the tax collectors prostituted themselves at the altar of money and things. He wants them to know Christ. And so the party is held. The conversations are held. There is mercy enough all around. But not everybody's happy. Look at your passage again. The religious police are out. They want to know why Jesus is fraternizing with these sinners. Jesus hears that question, and his reply is brilliant, and it is very instructive. What does he say here? He says, first of all, in a little parable saying here, only the sick need a doctor. I came to save sinners, not the righteous. And his words are dripping with irony here. When you're in the presence of the Holy One, God himself, none of us measures up. We can get away with this comparing ourselves with other people. But when we stand in the presence of God, who measures up? Who would have the, the ego and the hubris to suggest they, that they were not in need of the great physician? But he, he seals the deal when he quotes Hosea 6.6. 6. Matthew says Jesus asked him this question. Consider this. When the Lord says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now here are a group of people who have made religious righteousness based on the Old Testament as they have added to it a crushing burden of regulations and rules and rituals. That's their standard. And Jesus says, all right, the standard says that what God loves above all else is the showing of mercy. And with that statement, they are condemned as the sick in need of a doctor because they are devoid of mercy. And they are devoid of joy, by the way. They cannot celebrate God's grace extended toward undeserving sinners. 
And so what are we learning in this passage this morning? Well, the first thing we are learning is this. The authority and the power. The mercy and the compassion of Jesus converge at the intersection of the human heart. And it is at that place that Jesus, the seeker, comes to us, the sought. And he says, follow me. Will we leave everything? Arise and follow Christ. Now, the second thing that we learn in this passage is that Christianity is not awake. It is a celebration. Now, there is a funeral that has to occur. Of course, Jesus died on the cross to make possible our salvation and then rose triumphantly from the grave. We must go through our own funerals where we die to self-will and we live to his will. But when we take that step, we enter a celebration. We enter a life in which we can know joy because we have surrendered control of our lives to Christ. And his will is always loving and best. So these uh, religious police show up and they say, why don't you why, to Jesus? Why do your disciples not fast? John's disciples fast. The Pharisees disciples fast. Your disciples don't fast. Now, when they're talking about fasting, they're talking about a particular activity where where they would take charcoal and soot and ashes and they would mark up their faces and disfigure them to look very sad. And they would go around with long expressions and convince everybody how fully dedicated they were to God. That was their interpretation of a fast. Meanwhile, Jesus disciples are intending a celebration and small villages like Capernaum, these small towns in Palestine. The people were usually poor. Life was very hard. There were very few opportunities to celebrate. And one of those was at a wedding, especially of a prominent family. So when there was a wedding in a small town like Capernaum, the doors were thrown open. The whole community was invited and they partied for a week and the bridegroom's family footed the bill. So you can be sure those people took advantage of that opportunity to celebrate. Jesus says, I'm the bridegroom. By the way, in the Old Testament, God himself is called the bridegroom. So Jesus is showing them who he is. He says, I have come that I might invite you to the party. By grace, sheer grace, I have paid the price. Now, since I am here, why would my people be sad? It's time to celebrate. So often in the scriptures, uh, Jesus uses this, this, this idea of the heavenly banquet to describe life in the kingdom of God. Remember chapter eight. We've just been there. Scott took us there where the centurion, the Roman soldier. Demonstrated great faith. In fact, Jesus was amazed at his faith. There's only two places in the gospels that Jesus is spoken of as being amazed. He was amazed at the faith of a Roman soldier. He was amazed at the lack of faith of religious leaders. And as he saw the faith of this Roman soldier, he said there will be people who come from the east, who come from the west. They will sit down 
with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob at the kingdom of God. Do you regularly celebrate the fact that you have been included in Christ? You have a place at the banquet because of the mercy that came running to you when Jesus invited you to himself. You know, if we have been saved by God's grace, we enter into an intimate love relationship with him. Wherever you are right now in your life, all is well. All is well. No matter what you encounter, the goodness of our great God trumps it. And we know that God uses the bad stuff. To redeem it, to build our character, to outfit us for heaven. And he's going to have the last word about it. It's going to be a good word. So quit looking at God through the character of your circumstances and look at the character of your circumstances through God. And rejoice. The kingdom of God is a celebration. Are you? And then finally... We learn one other thing from this passage, and it's the the ironic sayings of Jesus there at the end. He says, you know, you don't put a new patch on an old garment, because then when you throw it in the washer, the new patch is going to shrink and it's going to tear loose from the garment and the hole is going to be bigger. He says, you don't pour new wine into old wineskins, which were goatskins in that day. He says, because the old wineskins are going to be brittle. Inflexible, And when you put the new fermented wine in it, they're just going to burst. You put new wine in new wineskins. Now, what is Jesus saying there? Well, this is what he's saying that you and I need to hear very closely. Christianity is not just about adding a little Jesus to your old way of life. Now, that can mean... Religious legalism, or it can mean the life of self-absorption and self-improvement and money and things, which life Matthew had already lived and knew that it was an illusion. Jesus doesn't come just to sort of add a little glimmer of grace to an old lifestyle. He comes to effect the radical reconstruction of our lives, beginning by giving us a new heart. Are you willing to let God do his new thing in your life this morning? The authority and the power, the mercy and the grace of Jesus converge at the intersection of your heart. Will you arise? And follow him. We have just uh, had Jeff. Jeff C. (laughs) Pray on this Memorial Day as we remember the shoulders of people who have died upon which we stand. And it is a very good thing to remember. Uh, Leon Hurley uh, sent forward an email this week uh, telling a story of remembering. And it is the story of Candace Leitner, whose 13-year-old daughter, Carrie, was hit and killed by a drunk driver in Sacramento, California, a number of years ago.
Candace Leitner determined that she would never forget the death of her daughter, who was struck by a driver who two days before had been released from a charge of drunk driving and who had been a repeated offender. So she formed a group called MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, which to this day still has influence in dealing with conditions that led to the death of her daughter. She remembered her daughter. She did not die in vain. Lives have been spared because of the death of her daughter. The message in this passage is that Jesus, the Son of God, the sinless one, laid down his life for my sins and for yours. We are all sick and in need of the doctor. We need to be mesmerized by God's mercy. Do you regularly remember the cost of God's life? That's the fundamental discipline of a life of joy and of fruitfulness in the kingdom of God is to learn on a daily basis to turn our thoughts Godward and to reflect on His grace and His glory. So what do we need to do with a message today? We're coming to a time of decision. And that's the thing about being in God's Word and being in worship. It's never just to have an experience and learn some neat things and sing some neat songs. But God intends to do new things in our lives. So first of all, do you stand at the intersection of God's authority and His mercy? And has mercy has come running in your direction, have you gotten up and embraced it by embracing the Savior? Are you reflecting that and are you extending that? Are you a follower of Jesus? Secondly, do you regularly celebrate your place at the great banquet in the kingdom of God? Are you forever grateful, actively, for God's initiative of grace? Are you practicing that holy heart habit of turning your thoughts regularly to Christ. The scriptures help with that. Worship helps with that. Faithful friends help with that. But are you learning to do that? And thirdly, and lastly, what new thing does God want to do in your life today as we have revisited His mercy and grace? And are you open to God's new thing? I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to have a brief time when you can respond. Now, there are ways you can respond, just you and God. You talk to God about what he's been saying to you this morning through worship and the word. You can use a connection card. That's a great little tool to register a next step commitment, to ask for prayer, for ask for a personal interview with one of us. You can certainly have a conversation with me or others following the service. But be sure you listen and respond to God's voice. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your initiative. That's what we've learned today, that we are not the seekers. You are. We are the sought. But thank you, oh God, that you seek us. You have sought us and you have pursued us resolutely with your mercy, your love and your grace. 
Father, I pray this morning that some of us will feel your tap on our hearts. The call of Jesus to say, follow me. And knowing fully that you are a good and an awesome God, we will get up gladly, forsake all other preoccupations and priorities for the passionate priority of following you. I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We are now going to participate in the the act of worship called giving.